0: we're going to be looking, talking primarily about worldviews. And in the course of worldviews, we're also going to spend a significant segment of our class this morning talking about the authority of Scripture, um, because that is, of course, the foundation of the Christian worldview. So, moving right into it. Um, From last week, what I've got are the bullet points from last week's handout. Um, So let's go through them quickly. Apologetics, simply put, is the defense of the Christian faith. We talked about how um, the word apologetics comes from the Greek root, meaning to make a defense, and that is what we do when we do apologetics. Um, It is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. And one of the things we discussed is that that's an unusual formulation. Most people, um, if asked on the street, would if you said, hey, well, what is Christianity? Most people would say, well, it's a religion. Um, you know, perhaps a lifestyle, but philosophy of life is an unusual formulation. But we looked at the definition of philosophy. Um, It is that it is the most basic beliefs, concepts, and attitudes of an individual or group, and we concluded that 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 describes Christianity properly understood, right? That it's not just sort of an, an add-on that you, you know you've got this secular materialist worldview, and you sort of like stick a little piece of Christianity over here so you have something to do on holidays. But rather, um, Christianity—if you—if if you consistently believe Christianity is set forth in the Bible—then it becomes the dominant truth, the dominant belief, the dominant factor in who you are and how you live your life. Um, next, the limits of apologetics. When we do apologetics, we can't talk people into believing in Jesus, that if the Lord has not kindled faith in someone's heart, then um, we can talk to them from now till, the, till Jesus comes back, and, and they're not going to be converted. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we can do is try to clear away the rubble, expose the inconsistencies in um, the individual's current worldview, so that um, perhaps there'll be fertile ground for the, for the gospel. Um, there are you know, different approaches to apologetics. And we talked briefly about evidentiary apologetics, uh, which involves typically um, you know talking about you know e- evidence and historical evidence for the truth of the scriptures and the truth of Christianity, things like you know talking about how many copies of the the Scriptures, in the Old and New Testaments, exist in the original language, and how old those are, and um, various you know contemporary historical records that seem to line up with what's written in the Bible, and that sort of thing. And um, I don't discount that that's of some value to some people, but in my view, in um, contemporary twenty-first century Richmond, Virginia, it's not um, a very effective way to reach unbelievers, particularly to the secular materialist type. Um, the presuppositional method, I believe, is uniquely and well suited uh, to our time and Place. And what we do is we seek to defend the faith by exposing the presuppositions of the unbeliever, contrasting them with those of the Christian, and demonstrating the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's position. And that is that is the goal of this class, that you should all be able to do that well by the time we finish. So that of course assumes that well, I've used the word presupposition twice here, and that assumes we know what a presupposition is. So um, definitionally, a presupposition is an elementary assumption in one's reasoning or in the process by which opinions are formed, a personal commitment that is held at the most basic level of one's network of belief. So we'll go through some examples of those a little later. Um, The the, the source of authority, as I mentioned earlier, is 1 Peter 3.15. It gives us a command that in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this is a command to all Christians. Sometimes people think that apologetics is something limited to um, to pastors or academic theologians, you know, seminary professors, but that is not the case. Uh, it is for all of us, um, and when we think about, you know, the the struggle that the church is in with the world, our weapons are not of the flesh. Um, they're, they're spiritual in nature, and that's what we're doing. Uh, we don't, you know, tie people up and threaten to burn them at the stake if they don't, uh, don't believe. Uh, to, but to do apologetics well, We must first learn to think like a Christian. What do we mean by that? We need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We must regiment our thinking so that what God has revealed in his word becomes foundational and presuppositional for all that we do. And so I I can't emphasize this enough, right? But if I said it last week, if Jesus was raised from the dead, as described in the Bible, then that is necessarily the central event of all history, and it changes everything. If you, if you believe that is true, and you understand the implications of it, then the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the ethical principles by which you live, and the very meaning of life itself, all flow out from it. If it's not true, then Christianity is a lie. And, and it's really just that simple, right? But if it is true, then everything has to flow from it. Um, and our most basic presupposition as Christians, our foundational belief, our source of knowledge, is that the Bible is true. It is the standard of truth against which everything else should be judged. Um, that brought us then to the myth of neutrality. Um, that is to say, when you were having a conversation of the apologetic type with someone, and he says, well, you know, you, you're going to prove to me that God exists. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm neutral. I have no position at all. You, you're, you're the one advocating for God, so you've got to prove it. That That is um, false and not something to be sucked into. Um and the key point here is that there is no neutrality, right? It's not like we are all morally neutral beings, and believing in God is just sort of an option, a nice to have, right? First, God is real, and two, everybody knows it, because it is written in your heart and is written on the face of all creation. And there are two categories of people, and there have been ever since the fall. There are people who are at war with God, and there are people who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. And so neutrality is, in fact, a myth. And to use Greg Monson's words, they aren't neutral and you shouldn't be either. Um, it's a fallacy to start a conversation by assuming the not God proposition. So like, let's assume not God and go from there. That is an anti-Christian position and it is disloyal to Christ and you should not do it. You should say, no, 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 God exists. You're the one contending that he doesn't exist. So let's talk about your presuppositions, and that's what we're going to learn to do. Um, again, nothing is neutral. All truth claims are either consistent with the Bible or contrary to the Bible, um, because the, war, the world is at war with God, and peace will only come through submission to Christ. There is, in fact, no middle ground. So key point here is that the Christian worldview is dependent upon the truth of Scripture. I said that again. I'm going to keep saying it, right? Because our most basic presupposition, our most foundational belief as Christians is that the Bible is true. And the unbeliever you're talking to might very well say to you, well, you're just assuming that. You can't prove the Bible's true. And I'll say back is, sir, you are correct. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm assuming it, but it is absolutely my foundational presupposition. And I know the Bible's true, because the holy spirit has worked in my heart and revealed to me that the bible is true And I realize that as we sit here you may not agree with that and I understand that and i'm going to pray That the lord will change your heart and reveal to you that his bible is true But what I can demonstrate to you sir Is that if we start with the bible is true the rest of the christian worldview follows from that It is consistent And it is it answers all the big questions of life and we're going to talk about that here in, in a little bit later um, That if the Bible's true, we've got answers Right? There's no reason for a Christian to sit around and stare at the wall or gaze at his navel and say, well, what is the meaning of life? Because the meaning of life is revealed to you in the Bible. It's written on the face of creation. It's not a secret. All those professors in the philosophy department at a secular university, that you know, they're looking for the one true thing. They're looking for the philosopher's stone, the thing on which they can found a system of ethics, a system of morality, a system of metaphysics. They're missing the boat. Because you've already got your philosopher's stone if you're a Christian. You've already got your one true thing, and that one true thing is that the Bible is true. So, looking at that, we're going to take some time this morning, because we have six weeks for this class, and I think this is important, to talk about the authority of Scripture. Um, I've described it, and as an excursus, because it wasn't quite in line with what I had planned for the class, but I, I think it's important. Um, so as I said earlier, our most basic presupposition is that the Bible is true. And by the way, the handouts don't start till I get done with the excursus, so you can sit back and relax. Um, so our, our Confession of Faith, that is to say the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, starts off, chapter one, is about the authority of Scripture. And this is perfectly logical, because that's how we know all the rest of it, right? If we started with the doctrine of justification, well, that might be a reasonable place to start, but to the uninitiated, to the skeptic, you must say, well, why are you, how do you know? Well, so we know... Because the Bible's true. So we're starting with that, with the confession. The the divine started that way, and I think it makes a ton of sense. And so it goes on to explain all the other truths. But for probably at least 125 years, maybe 150, we've had cultural forces in the united states and in the west in general that have challenged the authority of scripture so for you know at least a couple thousand years or close to it you know there was a broad cultural consensus that the bible was true and we could argue about how to interpret it and whether church authority was on the same level as scripture and we could talk about um you know whether you know some other book should be included there, there were there were people that argued around the edges but the ba- there was a basic cultural consensus that the, that the scriptures were essentially true and but that's that's no longer the case and so there's sort of two threads of this that I see in contemporary culture, right? And one is the one we're going to talk about the most in this class, which is secular materialism, right? And most people who aren't Christians, or unless they're a Muslim or something, they are walking around Richmond, Virginia today, are secular materialists. They don't really believe in the transcendental, don't really believe there's anything other than the material things you can see and touch, would deny a belief in God, belief in the soul. And even maybe if pressed might say, well, I don't really know, but they're functionally secular materialist, right? And that's why when you start talking about things like death, they get very uncomfortable. Right? Nothing makes a secular materialist more uncomfortable than death, than going to a funeral, than seeing their friend, their loved one in the box up at the front of the church being lowered down into the ground because it requires the materialist to think to go where he doesn't want to go, right? To contemplate things eternal, to contemplate the god that is written on his heart, the law of God that is written on his heart, the God that he is at war with. So they don't want to talk about that, right? They, 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 want, they want to talk about, about you know, things that can be discovered by science, things that you can touch and see. But this is the person who just outright denies the authority of Scripture. Says, well, you know, the Bible, that's just a book of fairy tales. And so, alright, that's, that's that. We're going to learn how to deal with that guy, right? That's, that's really actually fairly, fairly straightforward, and, and we'll deal with that in our next class. Um, but what do we do with modernism? And let me let me define it for you and tell you what I'm talking about. So, starting in the late 19th century, you start, and by which I mean the 1800s, of course, you start to get this wave of new scientific discovery. Right? All of a sudden, stuff starts rolling. They they discover microorganisms. You know, all of a sudden, doctors may be able to wash their hands between patients when doing surgery, um, and you know, they 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 discover radioactivity. And there's all these breakthroughs in, in physics and in chemistry and in biology. And this is probably exemplified by Charles Darwin. He's kind of like, you know, the icon of it. Because, you know, he, 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 go, he writes a couple of books, and all of a sudden, all the people who really don't believe in the Bible anyway, this becomes sort of their rallying cry. is say, like, oh, look, the Bible isn't true. We've got an alternative theory. Well, I would suggest, first of all, that nothing that Darwin ever wrote suggests an actual theory to the origin of the universe. Uh, but he is challenging literal six-day creation. Right? by suggesting the descent of the species um, and, and so forth. And so that becomes kind of a rallying cry. So suddenly, and remember at this time, there's broad cultural consensus on Christianity. There's lots of cultural Christianity. There's tons of people that are going to church who aren't necessarily Christians, but they're going to church because it wouldn't be socially acceptable to not go to church. And there's probably social benefit to go to the church. You know, you'll see and be seen, and you, if you go to the right church, you might make some friends or some business contacts, and it's a nice network for your family and all this sort of thing. And there's men... Who are going into gospel ministry not because they have a calling from god and not because they passionately believe the scriptures are true because you know it's a pretty good job and you know you don't have to go out and get dirty on the farm and you know you, you get paid pretty well and you you know you, you preach and you go to funerals and you visit people and and, and, and you're respected in the community and, and and it's a it's a nice life and so there's a big component of the church, and that includes the Presbyterian church, which at that time is split into north and south. We have the PCUSA in the north and the PCUS in the south after the war between the states. And so, you know, not all of Israel is Israel. And what we start to see is an effort by some to reconcile Christianity with these new scientific discoveries, right? And that in and of itself, when I put that to you as a proposition doesn't sound inherently unreasonable, right? God has given us reason. He's given us our faculties. We have the ability to use the scientific method to discover things about his world. Good, right? That sounds great. But what happens when a human scientist thinks he's discovered a fact that seems inconsistent with scripture? Well, if your supreme authority is scripture, say, well, my friend, I appreciate your hard work, but I'm afraid you must be mistaken. Go back and Work on it some more. But if you don't really believe the Bible's true, and you instead think that you're worshiping man's reason, and you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and you're denying the authority of the word because you're at war with God, and you say, oh, well, look, the scientist says X, Bible says Y, Bible must be wrong. So suddenly there's this effort to reconcile that because I think there, people are recognizing that there's a collision coming. Right? And the people the people are going to stop going to church. They're going to stop believing the Bible. Christianity is going to lose its broad cultural influence. So how, what do we do about that? Well, we're going to have to fix Christianity. We're going to have to change our doctrine. We're going to have to you know, loosen up the subscription to the standards, and we're going to have to get with the times. And so that starts to happen, and it starts to be kind of a big deal. Um, and so by the 19, say about 1910... This is a big deal in the Presbyterian Church. And so, in, and it starts to be a big deal at General Assembly because there's an effort by some conservatives, some Bible believing brethren, who are seeking to hold on to the, the doctrines of the faith, right? And they start denying things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus. And of course, in order to do all that, you have to deny the inerrancy of Scripture because if the Bible's true, well, then all the other stuff must be true too. But if the Bible isn't true, the Bible could, even even if it's maybe contains some truth, but isn't all true. Well, then suddenly you've got options, right? You can say, well, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian and I've got a Bible and I read it once in a while and it's, it gives me some good wisdom. But I don't actually believe everything in it's true. I don't believe a man was raised from the dead. And so the question is, is the church going to allow? It's officers, it's elders, it's ministers to walk around saying stuff like that. And this was a real issue, and we're talking 135 years ago. So, and by the way, let me suggest to you that when I get really discouraged sometimes about the state of the church today, I can go back and look at this stuff, and it makes me feel a little better, right? (laughs) Because the immediate crises that we're facing are not new, right? There have been generations of faithful brethren that have stood up to this stuff before, and Jesus is going to preserve His church, so don't forget that. Um, so, three times in 1910, 1916, and 1923, the General Assembly of the PCUSA, which remember at that time is the Northern branch of the church, um, passes you know a you know a resolution, some some thing at General Assembly, requiring that to be a teaching elder, to be a minister, you have to hold to five basic doctrines: um, the truth of Holy Scripture the factuality of the virgin birth, um, the miracles as described in scriptures, um, Christ's sacrifice on Calvary to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and the bodily resurrection. And the text that I put there, I should have put quotes around it, that was from a, um, a speech by Gordon Clark given in response to the Auburn affirmation, um, which we're going to talk about here in a second. So that happens, right? And they do it again in 23. And as they, what's going on, 1910, 1916, 1923, this is building, right? And, and, and it's, getting, it's getting worse, and there's guys trying to hold on to the church, right? And then in 1924, so in January, it'll be 100 years since this, since this happened. So again, keep it 100 years ago, we have the Auburn Affirmation. And this is sort of infamous in Presbyterian history. Um, it has nothing to do with Auburn, Alabama, by the way. So if you're, if you're, you know, if you're an Auburn fan, don't worry. Um, Auburn, uh, in Auburn, New York, because remember, it's the northern church, um, a bunch of men meet, and they write a heretical manifesto called the Auburn Affirmation. Um, and this is in direct response to the actions of the General Assembly. And these men, who I believe are all teaching elders, signed this document. And I think there's about 60-some that signed it originally, saying it is not necessary to believe these five doctrines to be, to be, to be a Christian or to be a pastor. And we're going to look at the text of it here in a second. Um, it was ultimately, because remember, you know, there's no internet, right? So they publish it And then they later republish it with more signatures, because more people are signing on. So ultimately, um, 1,274 PCUSA teaching elders signed this thing. Um, So this was a problem. Um, So this is, I'm going to give you some quotes here from the Auburn Affirmation. So, furthermore, this opinion of the General Assembly, the one I just mentioned, attempts to commit our church to certain theories concerning the inspiration of the Bible and the Incarnation, the Atonement, the Resurrection, and the continuing life and supernatural power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hold most earnestly to these great facts and doctrines. Some of us regard the particular theories contained in the deliverance of the General Assembly of 1923 as satisfactory explanations of these facts and doctrines. But we are united in believing that these are not the only theories allowed by the scriptures and our standards as explanations of these facts and doctrines of our religion. that all who hold to these facts and doctrines, whatever theories they may employ to explain them, are worthy of all confidence and fellowship. So this is slightly subtle language, but what they're describing is the inerrancy of scripture, the virgin birth, the atonement for sins on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, and his continuing lordship and power, those are theories. And they're okay, but there's other acceptable theories too. And people that hold to those other acceptable theories, well, we should welcome them in fellowship and allow them to be pastors in the church. So 1,274 guys are saying this. Um, Further, this is a little further down the document, the doctrine of inerrancy intended to enhance the authority of the scriptures, in fact, impairs their supreme authority for faith and life. All right, just try to wrap your head around that for a minute. Um, And weakens the testimony of the church to the power of God and to salvation through Jesus Christ. We hold that at the General Assembly of 1923 in asserting that the Holy Spirit did so inspire, guide, and move the writers of holy scriptures as to keep them from error, spoke without warrant of the scriptures or of the confession of faith. So there it is. You've got a big segment of the church at this point, and not just, not, we're not, these aren't believers, they're not deacons, they're not ruling elders, these are teaching elders, um, who deny the inerrancy of scripture. And so, as I said earlier, once you lose the inerrancy of Scripture, what are you going to do with the rest of it? So let's consider that. If the Scriptures are not inerrant, what would that mean? Well, it would mean they're not authoritative, right? You can't trust them because they're not inerrant. They contain errors. They're not reliable. They're not a source of information that we can, you know, use to know God and, and know about our, our state, our anthropology, Um. They can't be believed, and it would mean that we can't have reliable knowledge of God through the scriptures. So remember last week when I said, if you don't know God, you can't know anything? Well, if you don't know the scriptures aren't true, then you can't know God, so you don't know anything. All, all, all meaning is now vacated. Um, this came to mind when I was studying for this, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And so, how do we know whether Christ has been raised or not? Well, the Scriptures is how we know. And so if the Scriptures aren't true, what's the point of any of it? If the Scriptures aren't true, then Christianity isn't true and is meaningless. Now, I don't know, anybody here ever read the Institutes? Sort of, maybe read a little bit of it? Um, it, It's a tome for sure. Um, But I, I commend it to you if you don't have a copy, buy one. It's not that expensive, and it is very indexable. You don't have to pick it up and read the whole thing. You can go through the table of contents and go to the topic that you're interested in, and Calvin is deeply pastoral. You read him, he's, this, is, this is not hard technical theology. It's like he's talking to the congregation, and he, and he lays it out. Language is a little bit archaic in the beverage translation, which is, I'm using. Uh, there's a newer one that's more expensive, but the beverage one is free online, for that matter. Um, but this is, this is towards the beginning, because Calvin starts the Institutes, as he should, with knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Just like the Westminster Confession, he doesn't start with justification, he doesn't start with the Ordo Salutis, he starts with, how do we know God, how do we know stuff about ourselves? And this is what he writes in Book 1, Chapter 6, Paragraph 1. Not in vain, therefore, has he added the light of his word in order that he might make himself known unto salvation, and bestowed the privilege on those whom he was pleased to bring into near and more familiar relation to himself. And he gives us sort of a metaphor. Um, I guess it's a simile because he says as. Um, For as the aged, or those whose sight is defective, when any book, however fair, is set before them, though they perceive that there is something written, are scarcely able to make out two consecutive words. But when aided by glasses, begin to read distinctly. So, Scripture, gathering together the impressions of deity, which till then lay confused in their minds, dissipates the darkness and shows us the true God clearly. So Calvin is making a comparison between the Scripture and a pair of eyeglasses. So if you, you know, have less than perfect vision, as I now do, I can look at this handout all day long and it doesn't do anything for me. And similarly to the unregenerate, to the man who's not yet a Christian, he has God has written on his heart, as I said earlier. But he, absent the Scriptures, absent the special revelation, he can't do anything with it. But when he's provided with the Scriptures then it becomes clear. So scripture is the key to knowledge of God. Um, I thought that was a nice thing from Calvin. And then I mentioned earlier the Westminster Confession starts with scripture, and so this is paragraph 1-1 of the Westminster Confession. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So this is essentially what we just saw Calvin say, right? That, you know, know, God is there, but it's not sufficient for us to come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being now ceased. So there's no more prophets, right? There's no more oracles. What we have is the word of God in a book where we can read it. And that's how he operates in his, in his modern church. So the scripture is, the, is a sole way in which we can have knowledge of God and ultimately knowledge of self. Now, here I might be going on a limb a little bit. Martin Luther famously said, and it's quoted often, that justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And I certainly agree with that. It's, it's, it's essential. It's what distinguishes us, for example, from uh, the Roman Catholics, right, who have a, a different doctrine of, of justification, which is, is, is false. It's certainly our most central doctrine. But I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, this morning that without the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, we wouldn't have a doctrine of justification, because how would you know our doctrine of justification? How would you know that it's true? What authority would you have for it, right? I could, I could walk up and say to you, well, you know, Jesus died for your sins, but if I'm not grounding that in the Word of God, how, how could you possibly know if it's true? Um, So I think this is, is just as we see in the way the confession is structured and the way Calvin's Institutes are structured, it is our most fundamental doctrine, which is perfectly consistent with my thesis to you this morning, which is that a Christian worldview must be grounded in the Word of God, that it is our most basic presupposition. Now, we're going to go one step further. Let's say you say to me, okay, well, you know, Matt, I believe... Jesus died for my sins. I believe he was God, and he died on the cross, and he was resurrected. I believe all that stuff. But, you know, that whole creation thing, I, I just can't buy into that. You know, I've, 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 I went to biology class at college, and I learned all about the descent of the species. And um, I just, yeah, that, 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 that little fantasy in Genesis 1, I'm just not, I not, not, can't accept that. Well, then you've got a problem. You've got an epistemological problem. Because the only way that you can know that Jesus died for your sins is because the Bible said so. And the only way that's reliable is if the Bible is in fact true, if it's inerrant, if it it, it contains God's word and doesn't have any mistakes. But if it's true that the Bible is inerrant, then it must all be inerrant, right? Which means that bit about six-day creation, that's got to be true. So you've got some cognitive dissonance going on, if you say, I rely on the Bible to believe that Jesus died for my sins, but I reject the Bible with respect to creation. And it doesn't just have to be creation. It can be anything else you don't like in the Bible, right? Um, like I don't like Romans 13 much. I don't want to submit to the civil authority, so I'm just not going to buy into that part, right? Um, but to say that you only believe selective parts of the Bible is to reject the authority of Scripture. Once you take that step, once there's that one part you don't want to believe, You've now rejected rejected Scripture. You don't believe the Bible's true anymore. What you've done instead is you've made yourself the ultimate authority. It's not the Bible that's the ultimate authority, it's me. And I'm just going to pick the parts I like. So you've now turned it on its head. You've made yourself the judge of God. And I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that that is unacceptable. And it's not something that you can hold while maintaining your reason. Um, It is not okay, and it's not consistent and rational to say that I know Jesus died for my sins because I said so so uh, this slide I just I just sort of lay this out again that if you if you think about it you know a little more logistically how do I know Jesus died for my sins how do I know he was raised from the dead because the Bible says so in order for me to take that position intellectually I have to believe in the authority of the Bible and which means I must accept the whole Bible And how do I know the Bible is true? Well, because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. So the confession in um, chapter 1, paragraph 5 says this, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. All right, so yes, the Bible is marvelous. It is wonderful. It jumps off the page you with how consistent it is and the the style and the majesty of the text. That's, That's all true. But notwithstanding that, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is From the inward work of the Holy Spirit and bearing witness by and with the word at our hearts. So, and oh, by the way, remember a few minutes ago when we were quoting from the Auburn Affirmation and they say the confession doesn't require you to believe that scriptures are inerrant? Well, infallible. Uh, you know, you do with that what you will. Um, <laughs> but these guys weren't reading the same confession we're reading, apparently. All right. So. At the core of our class on presuppositional apologetics, we have to understand the nature of each person's ultimate authority, right? Where do you ground your ultimate authority? And for the Christian, it is and necessarily must be that the Bible is true. For the unbeliever, it's ultimately himself. And let me suggest this to you. I said to you last week, and I've said many other times, that if you're dealing with someone who is an adherent of some false religion, whether it's you know, Islam or Buddhism or they're a Hindu or whatever, then you know, he's going to appeal to some other kind of transcendental authority. But even in that case, brothers and sisters, his ultimate authority is still himself because the Holy Spirit has not testified in his heart that the false doctrine is true. That only happens with Christianity. So the, 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 the person you're meeting who, who says he's a devout Muslim... He's still ultimately report, resorting to himself as his ultimate authority. All right, so I'm now going to jump into what I intend to spend the whole class on, which is introduction to worldviews. If we don't get through it all today, no big deal. Does anybody have any questions or comments about the authority of Scripture before we move on? Mr. Bullock. Amen. Thank you, sir. So comment from uh, Pastor Bullock that the presuppositionalism is distinctive in that it takes the Bible seriously. Yeah. And I uh, heartily, heartily agree with that. And I'm just repeating for the for the tape. Yes, uh, Ms. Janert. So question from Ms. Janert that, you know, how do you conversationally and speaking with the unbeliever get past the circular nature of the Bible as basic presupposition, right? That once, you, once you arrive at it, how do you... And the answer is, you're not going to convince anybody that the Bible is true. You can't, right? The Spirit is either going to testify that it's true and regenerate this person's heart, or it's not. So that's, that's beyond what we can accomplish, right? But what we can accomplish is exposing the irrationality and absurdity of their current worldview. So, I'm not going to defend to you that the Bible's true. I'm instead, hey, let's talk about you, because let's just think about this from like a basic human dynamics, right? Dale Carnegie, what's everybody's favorite subject, right? Themselves. So, if, you know, nobody wants to sit down and listen to you spout what you believe, but they're happy to tell you what they believe, right? So, this, this, this works beautifully and naturally. It's like, really? Oh, so you're an atheist, huh? Um, well, tell me about that. Do you actively, like, uh, you know, affirm that there is no God, or are you just not sure? Well, I'm just not sure. Okay, well, um be a good person. Oh, do you? Really now? Um, what exactly does it mean to be a good person? Well, you know, I try to do what's right and what's wrong. Oh, really? Well, how do you know what's right? And boom, 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 we just peel the onion. We're, we're, we're going to do this next class in, d- in, in detail, right? But we're just going to keep going. And within about 10 questions, we're going to get to the fact that, yeah, I have no basis for my worldview. They might not admit it, right? But you're going to keep driving it home gently and... Ultimately, you know, Greg Kokel says his, his goal in apologetics is to put a stone in the person's shoe. And I think that's a good way to put it. It's like, I'm not, I'm not expecting, you might, it might happen to say, you know what, you're right, I'm going to believe in Christianity right now. But what you might just do instead is you have a general conversation where you ask some hard questions, and this person walks on and goes, eh, I, don't, I don't know about that. And that's about all I think you can reasonably expect to accomplish. And then maybe, hey, why don't you come to church with me? You know, I think we have to be reasonable in our expectations. Not not to say that you, know, you might not get somebody who falls down and suddenly is converted, but it is what it is. But ultimately, we are going to admit our presupposition and then identify the other person's presupposition. Sorry, it's a long answer to your question, but I hope it's satisfactory. Oh, Yes. You're wrong. <laughs> that, that, that's it. Or at least, how, what, how, how what your position. Well, I hope you find our class helpful in that in that regard. But the um, yes, because ultimately, that's all we can do, right? I can't prove, I can't convince, as I said at the beginning of the class, I can't convince somebody by talking to them that Jesus died for their sins and the Bible's true. I can say it, but the Lord has got to work. Anything else? Yes, sir. Whatever happened to the Auburn affirmation, so it was not something that was officially adopted by the church. So it's out there, you know, and I think the positions taken in the Auburn affirmation are consistent with the position held by the PCUSA today. And, and, and just for purposes of the recording, for anyone who doesn't know, that northern PCUSA church merged in the early 80s with the PCUS southern church. So essentially the two liberal halves reunited into what's now the modern PCUSA. But they certainly do not require any kind of subscription. Their, their book of order describes the confession as useful helps. But no one is, no one is required to subscribe to the, to the confession in any way. And they're very, very broad. And you don't have to believe in the inerrancy of scripture. You don't have to believe in the vineyard, You don't have to believe in any of that stuff right? Um, And that's not to say there aren't people around there that maybe do, but it's not required. Um, So anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about worldviews and see what we can get through. So back to what's a worldview. Everyone, whether believer or unbeliever, takes things for granted. Everyone has things they no longer question, but just assume And standards, I didn't suck at this before, by which they can discover more truth about the world. Everybody has a philosophy of life that tells them what the limits of reality are, standards of discovery are, and what our methods should be. In other words, everybody has a worldview. And in our first week, we defined worldview as another term for philosophy of life. This week, we're going to go a little deeper on that. So let's remember what a presupposition is and our, our definition from last week. And now we're getting into your, uh, your handout. Um, a presupposition is an elementary assumption in one's reasoning of, uh, of in the process by which opinions are formed, a personal commitment that is held at the most basic level of one's network of beliefs. And that's from Greg Bonson. Um, some examples of presuppositions. So we could say, you know, that there is a God, right? And I would bet most of you in this room... It is your functional presupposition that there is a God. But you could similarly have one that there is not a God, and there's people who walk around with that. Um, Humans have a soul, or they don't. Um, How about we can meaningfully meaningfully know God and how, how to relate to him? That is certainly a Christian presupposition, and the opposite of that is a presupposition of the agnostic or the skeptic right? You, you certainly, if, if you've had many conversations like this, someone's going to say to you, yeah, well, maybe there's a God, but, you know, who can know, right? So that's absolutely a, a functional presupposition. Um, to get more concrete, how about that we can trust our senses to give us true information about the world around us? If you want a fine illustration of this, go home and watch the movie The Matrix, right? the, the world isn't real. You're actually in some computer generated hallucination, right? And, and nobody can figure it out except a few, um, how about that the physical world is going to operate the same way today that it did yesterday? That the basic laws of motion in physics will continue to function, right? We all assume that when we stepped out of bed this morning and we didn't fly up to the ceiling. Um, it's, it's, it's so foundational and so basic that you don't even think about it. Um, how about that we can trust our memories, right, that the world wasn't created this morning, that our memories were implanted in our heads? Again, you think that sounds silly. That's because it's so basic that you don't even question it. Um, so here, here you go. Um, a worldview is a network of presuppositions which are not tested by natural science and in terms of which all experience is related and interpreted. Uh, that's the first, the number one on the, on the handout. So everyone has a worldview and presuppositions, whether he admits it or not. That's number two. And if, if you deny, if after having it explained to you, you deny that you have presuppositions, well, that probably means they're just even more deeply held, so that you can't even correctly identify them, right? Um so consider. I wanted to come up with an illustration here. Imagine if you woke up this morning without any presuppositions. What would that be like? Well, you'd be asking yourself a lot of questions, like: who am I? What is real? What is reality? How do I know those first two answers? And how should I live my life? Right? If you didn't have any presuppositions, you would be unable to function. So everybody has presuppositions and a worldview. And number three on the handout, the worldview of your opponent is the key to defending the faith. Um, we are learning to expose that worldview, point out its inconsistencies, and contrast it with the Christian worldview and Van Til called this the antithesis um, number four every thought, experience or sensation you have seen in the context of a worldview that allows you to relate it to other thoughts, experiences and sensations without this we wouldn't be able to function so it is your operative worldview that allows you to walk around and do stuff interact with people and make decisions um, and this is my illustration of that, we'll see how effective it is um, when you take a bite of a hamburger, say you go home and grill one up for lunch, the taste of it, which you perceive through your sense of taste, reminds you of other similar meals you've had in the past. Right? You're using your worldview, your prior knowledge, to relate to the experience of biting the hamburger. And you have memories of those prior meals being pleasurable and nourishing. You enjoyed eating those prior burgers, and they, they nourished your body. They didn't make you sick. Um, you felt satisfied after you ate them. So you decide to take a second bite. If the burger tasted rotten or foul, you wouldn't take another bite. You'd say, oh, this is nasty. What is this? And that in itself would be based upon prior experiences that you've internalized sometime when you ate some rotten or bad food and and you were able to relate that together. Now, what are the assumptions of that simple act of eating the burger and deciding whether to take the second bite? Well, it assumes that you can trust your senses to reliably communicate information to your mind about the world and that the same sort of things taste the same way every time, right? There's consistency from day to day of how a good or a bad burger tastes. It assumes that your memories are real, that your prior experiences that you're using to relate and understand the bite of the burger are, are actually there and not something that was somehow and falsely implanted in you. And finally, just to bring in some ethics, you're also assuming that it is ethically acceptable to eat the flesh of an animal something which some people deny. So, this is number five. Because Christianity is a worldview, then if you're committed to Christ for any part of your life, then, sorry for the typo, you necessarily must be committed to Christ in every area of your life. And this, this, should, this, should, this should sound a little bit like what I was talking about earlier with respect to believing Scripture, right? That it's either true or it's not. That, as I open the class, if the central claims of Christianity are true, then they're fundamental and presuppositional for us. And if they're not, then why be a Christian? So that said, so number five is because, because Christianity is a worldview, if you are committed to Christ for any part of your life, then you necessarily must be committed to Christ in every area of your life. All right, so what is a worldview, and what are the questions that a worldview necessarily must answer? Um, There are three categories of philosophical questions that I think you have to answer in order to have a worldview. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And now for those of you who are sitting here saying, please, Matt, don't assume that I know what metaphysics and epistemology are. Don't worry. Um, So first, metaphysics. Metaphysics is a branch of philosophy that deals with the nature of reality, origins, who man is, And the nature of history. And so you actually know a lot more about this than you might think you do, even if you haven't put the label metaphysics on it before. Um, What is man? Is he basically good or bad? What is his purpose? What is the origin of the universe? What is the nature of history, and where is it all going? And these are questions, brothers and sisters, that Christianity gives us the answers to. They're also questions that various secular philosophies give, give answers to or try to give answers to, right? These are, these are the big questions of life. Um, so that's metaphysics, in brief. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge and how we can know things. Um, this seems a little more esoteric. Um, what is the nature of truth and objectivity? How can we know anything? What does it mean to believe or know something? What is the nature of science and reason, and can they be relied on? And finally, most familiarly, ethics, the study of right and wrong, good and bad, moral responsibility and duty. And in ethics, you know, we ask questions like what is good? What is the standard of good and evil? How do we evaluate our actions and those of others? What are the nature, of feelings of guilt, atonement, and personal peace? What is the nature of the state, that meaning the government, and the social order? And what should they be? How does one attain and maintain moral character? Right. So these are, again, very familiar questions. And Christianity gives us answers to these. Right. But the, you know, these are things that secular philosophers spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but God's revelation to us in his Bible gives us the answers to these questions. Um, So number six was the three main areas of philosophy that make up a worldview, whether you admit it or not, are metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And then number seven, metaphysics is a study of the nature of reality, origins, and who man is, and the nature of history. It asks questions like, what is man? Is he good or evil? Where did man come from? Where is the world going? Number eight, epistemology is the study of knowledge and how we know what we know. It asks questions about the nature of truth and objectivity, how we can truly know anything, and how we can rely on science and reason. Number nine, ethics is the study of right and wrong, good and bad, moral responsibility and duty. It asks questions about what is right and wrong, what is the nature of government and society, and how we can attain good moral character. Number 10, in the Christian worldview, God's revelation of himself to us by his word, and specifically in the Bible, gives us the basis to answer all these questions. And then finally, right on this slide, number 11, our most basic presupposition as Christians is that the Bible is true. And I think I've said that like 10 or 11 times already today. All right, so if that's our basic presupposition, right, the Bible gives us answers to all those questions that I just rattled off. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to speculate. It's all there. And by way of illustration of this, I want to blow through very quickly the first 21 questions in, the, in our shorter catechism. And if you're not familiar with the shorter catechism, you'll note that it is, it is a summary of what the scriptures contain. Each item is footnoted to the Bible. Um, and it builds by starting with, you know, who are we? Who is God? What's our relationship Um, what is man's current state, how do we get out of that current state, right? Um, So question one, very familiar, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what's the meaning of life? Well, that's the meaning of life. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, and what duty God requires of man. Well, that's a lot of meaning of life in the first three. Well, what is God? Big question. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Well, what else can we know about God? How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby, for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's a pretty big, you know, metaphysical question. How doth God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. All right, so all God's works go into two buckets: creation, providence. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days, and all very good. Well, there's your origins. Um, How did God create man? Here's your anthropology. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Did our first parents continue in the estate in which they were created? Our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. What is sin? Sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So there's your transcendental authority for ethics, right? Deeper in the, in the catechism, we get into the specifics of the 10 commandments. Um, I'm going to skip through the rest of these. I hope you see the point, right? That the point being, the Bible answers all those big questions. Christianity gives us a complete worldview. It gives us a robust metaphysics in that God created the world. Our purpose is to glorify and enjoy him. And history is moving toward the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Hegel and Marx were right in that history isn't random. It is moving. It does have a direction. It is is moving towards a goal. They were just wrong about what the goal was. Christianity also gives us a robust epistemology. We can know that God is real and how to relate to Him because the Bible is true. We can rely on our senses and our reason because the Bible is true. We can gain knowledge about the world around us because we can trust our senses and our memories because the Bible is true. Um, Christianity gives us a comprehensive system of ethics as well. The Bible is true. Keep hearing that God's moral law was binding on all people at all times. The Larger Catechism, um, I, which I commend to you, gives us a robust exposition of that, and we can derive additional ethical principles from God's law through our reason and experience. Um, is, is that clock right or is my watch right? Um, all right. Well, that makes it ten twenty-nine. So I am going to stop there, and we're going to look at the secular materialist worldview next week. So thank you all for your attention, um, and I look forward to seeing you next week.